Good morning. It is uh, good to be with all of you again this morning. As Matthew said, I'll be uh, looking at Psalm 73 this morning uh, in God's Word. It was a brisk Monday morning in April, an unusually cold, actually, April morning. And I was sitting with my intern drinking coffee. I was the RUF campus minister at Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, Virginia. Now, I don't know if you've been to Blacksburg before. It's a lot like Clemson. One of the things that endeared it uh, to us as a family, uh, my wife and I both being Clemson grads, uh, it's a small college town. There's rarely much drama in Blacksburg outside of college football games. And so when a number of emergency vehicles raced by this coffee shop where I was drinking coffee with my, my intern, I, I joked to her, there must be a cat stuck in a tree. Well, not long after began the frantic phone calls. And I remember in those, uh, these phone calls hearing rumors about a shooter. And then the news reports started uh, coming in. And the numbers... Ten people were dead. Twenty people were dead. Thirty. And then finally, 32 people were dead in addition to the shooter. That was Virginia Tech on April 16th, 2007, 14 years ago, Friday. At the time, it was the deadliest mass shooting in our nation's history. Tragically, this scenario has become more commonplace in our age. In the last month, we need only drive less than two hours northeast or south of Clemson to find more examples of such a scenario. I recall this tragedy because often the first question our world asks in these moments that are all too familiar to us is why? Why the senseless taking of human life? Why? And then as Christians, the question's a deeper, more theological question. Why, Lord? Why does evil seem to triumph once again, why do the wicked have the victory, it seems, in their ways in these moments? It's a tough question. It's even tougher to answer, for in this life, it's often the case that the wicked indeed do prosper, even at the expense of God's people. We can't sugarcoat that reality. It's a, it's a really big pill to swallow. This morning, though, we come to a passage that helps us, that leads us as we wrestle with this reality, a, a passage that moves us toward an answer as we question God's judgment in those moments when it appears that wickedness has the victory. Our passage this morning, Psalm 73 this is God's Word, and it is our only rule for faith and for life. 
Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they had no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heaven and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we ask your favor now upon our time. As one psalmist has said, those who delight in and meditate upon the Word of God, they are like trees planted by streams of water. That, Lord, is our prayer this morning. May your Spirit be with us and present with us. May we be as trees planted by streams of water. For we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, our passage is a lengthy one. Um, it is written by uh, Asaph. Asaph is a Levite. Uh, he's actually attributed with writing uh, 12 different psalms. Maybe you've uh, studied one of those psalms uh, throughout this winter and early spring. Now, given its length, I'm not going to try to say everything about this text. You'll be, you'll be glad to know. I had a professor that used to say, if you try to say everything about a text, you'll say nothing. 
Uh, and so I'm going to heed those words this morning. But as lengthy as Psalm 73 is, its outline is very straightforward. It's very simple for us. Three parts to it. Okay? There is an admission, there is a realization, and there is a resolution. There's an admission, a realization, and a resolution. Okay, first, there is an admission. And this, this one admittedly is the longest point. It covers over half the psalm, the first 15 verses, this admission. And verse, 70, or verse uh, uh, 3 summarizes well this admission of Asaph. Verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity uh, of the wicked. When the catalog arrives in the mail or that special offer shows up, it lands in your inbox, immediately we pour over it, right? Flipping the pages, uh, scrolling down in the, in the email, we try to see well, what are we being offered today. We make this mental checklist of, uh, of what we need to, to make our lives more fulfilling. This phone or, or that truck, this pair of shoes, this vacation spot, this anti-aging skin cream, that will do it. This hair loss treatment, that'll be it. And if we think if we have all of these things, we'd be as happy as the model that we see wearing it or, or the friend that already has it. If only we could have these things. Our lives could be complete, as fruitful and as happy as we perceive their lives to be. This is envy. It's what others have and you want. It might be something tangible like a truck or shoes. It might be something more intangible like power or popularity. Regardless of envy's object, envy wants what others have and you do not. And according to the psalm, even God's people are prone to envy. Even you and I are prone to envy. Again, we see in this first section, this is an admission on Asaph's part. In this stark moment of honesty, Asaph admits that he envies. And he doesn't just envy anything or anyone. He actually envies the wicked. It I should probably say this, that, that let's clarify who the wicked are, okay? Uh, I, I, the wicked, we might think that the wicked are just those who, are, who behave exceptionally badly in the world, you know, the murderers and, and child abusers of the world. But when the Bible speaks of the wicked, it's actually speaking of those who live their lives independently of faith in God and, and, in, in, his, and in His plan of redemption, it is those who live uh, opposed to and apart from faith in Jesus, we might say. This lack of faith, it shows itself in our text. Uh, look at how, look at in verses uh, uh, 8 through 11, how, how the wicked mock God. Uh, they, mock, um, they mock his people. They scoff. Uh, they speak with malice. They set their mouths against the heavens. These are the wicked, living apart from faith. And Asaph, he envies them. Now, 
in our honesty, can't we say here that we find ourselves a whole lot like Asaph a lot, envying the wicked? Which of us can't relate to the longing for something that we have or we don't have and others do have? Especially when it's what the wicked have. For Asaph, he envied the prosperity of the wicked. Look at their fatness, verse 4 and verse 7. Their, their fatness, right? He envied their, their riches, verse 12. They didn't have to live paycheck to paycheck. They had more than, than they needed. The wicked did. Even beyond their prosperity and his admission, Asaph envies the ease of the wicked as well. Look, their lives, verse 5, their lives are painless. Their lives are, are trouble-free without a care, verse 12. For the wicked, it is a life of feather beds and silk sheets. My hunch is that most of us feel similarly, envying the apparent prosperity and ease that the wicked have. We envy that non-Christians live as they see fit. Their constraints, they don't seem to have any. It's the only constraints they have are those that they put on themselves. And they seem to prosper at times from it. How frustrating. They hook up with whom they want. They spend their money how they see fit. They do with their time whatever they please. In short, they live, again, independently from God and faith in Him. And rather than being life being more difficult, boy, at times it just seems as if they just prosper from it. At the height of his admission, in his honesty, Asaph says these words, Oh, these words are hard, to, are hard to read. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. That's what it feels like to a man who envies the wicked. In your bulletin, there's a quote from John Stott, which will make more sense now that you see the context of his quote. Uh, John Stott describes what Asaph admits in this moment, this honest moment, Stott says the wicked not only get away with their wickedness, but seem to be exempt from the troubles which befall other people. In a word, honesty is not the best policy. It does not pay to be good. It is the wicked who prosper while adversity overtakes the righteous. John Stott on Asaph in that moment in verse 13. It's at this point in the text. Now, we're still in our first point here. still in the, this admission. Okay? And it's at this point in the text that, that we need to recognize that there is a, there's a deeper question that's being asked in this envy. In, the past, uh, in at least one of the past sermons I've preached on the Psalms, I've referenced Dan Allender and, and Tremper Longman. And they have said that to understand our emotions, uh, it is important to understand that behind them, behind the, these emotions that we have behind them, there is a deeper core question that our heart is asking within us through that emotion. 
In other words, our emotions are a kind of symptom of a, of a deeper question churning within us. If you have COVID, right, you have symptoms like a fever or fatigue or your loss of taste or smell. Those are symptoms of an, those are outward symptoms of, a, of an inward, a deeper inward problem, a virus. Well, according to Allender and Longman, uh, our emotions are a kind of outward symptom of a deeper inward question churning within us. When Asaph admits his envy before the Lord in this very honest prayer, there is a deeper question that is churning within Asaph as he looks out into the world. The question is this, is God just? Is God just? Asaph says, Lord, I have kept my heart clean. I have have washed my hands in innocence, but for what? Lord, how is this right? Lord, how is this just? He is saying in so many words. When feelings of envy consume us, we're convinced so often that the scales of life are tilted in the favor of others, even the wicked. They have hometown referees that are are giving them all the calls, it seems. And in our envy, we are prone to ask, is God just? Despite all of our hard work in school, it's the non-Christian who gets the gaudy scholarship. And we're left empty-handed and with yet another loan to pay off. We put in the extra time at work, but it's the godless coworker who cuts corners that gets the promotion. We practice, and we practice more, and we practice still more. Yet it's the arrogant, faithless peer that gets the recognition in music or sports. We raise our child with a view of passing down the faith to her. Yet the pediatrician speaks those dreaded words, cancer. And all the while those parents with no fear of God in their eyes hear no such prognosis. In those moments, we admit with with Asaph, was it all in vain that I've kept my heart clean? Jesus, is this just? Is this the sort of operation you're running? From this admission, Asaph is then led to a realization, our second and much shorter point from verses 16 and 17. But, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. While his feelings of envy for the wicked have led him to this kind of crisis of faith, 
in worship, Asaph comes to the realization that his envy has limited his view of reality. And even though the scales of justice have appeared to be tilted in the wicked's favor now, that will not always be the case. In a way that we, in a way we could say that, that, uh, that in coming to worship, coming into the sanctuary of God, as he, as he says in these verses, Asaph, it's as if he's been given eyeglasses to wear, reading glasses, to where he can look down now at the page and see more clearly in front of him. And now with those eyeglasses sort of, you know, perched on the edge of his nose, Asaph comes to the realization that his envy has skewed the vision of ultimate reality, a a reality in which the wicked will not prosper forever. And justice will prevail. We could describe Asaph's realization as the Scottish evangelist Campbell Morgan has described it. He said, from the secret places of the Most High, we see things as God sees them. From the secret places of the Most High, we see things as God sees them. Of course, this realization then leads Asaph to a resolution, the final point. We've gone from an admission to a realization and now to a resolution. And in this resolution, Asaph describes a clearer vision of reality. On one hand, there's verse 18. Truly, you set the wicked in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. But then on the other hand, uh, in verses 23 and 24, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. So you see, while Asaph's feelings of envy toward the wicked moved him to admit in so many words, is God just? With with those eyeglasses on and with the realization of God reigning supreme over all, Asaph sees more clearly that the injustices of this age would not last forever. God has set the wicked in slippery places. They will fall to ruin, as we read in verse 18. And at the same time as the wicked fall to ruin, God himself, he will, he will hold the hand of his children. They will be received to glory, as we just read in 23 and 24. So while you may envy, you may feel envy for the world around you, a godless world that seems to know nothing but prosperity, Psalm 73 places before us a day when all that is broken will be mended, when all that is crooked will be made straight, when all that is wrong will be made right. Before his death nearly 20 years ago, Johnny Cash sang these words. You can throw your rock, hide your hand, working in the dark against your fellow man. But as sure as God made black and white, what's done in the dark will be brought to light. You can run on for a long time, run on for a long time. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. 
Go and tell that long-tongued liar. Go and tell that midnight rider, the rambler, the gambler, and the backbiter. Tell him that God's going to cut them down. Those are hard words. But the point is really the same as the latter half of Psalm 73. While the wicked very often prosper, their ride will not last forever. Yahweh's justice will prevail. While they can throw the rock and hide their hand and work in the dark against their fellow man, the wicked can be assured that what's done in the dark will be brought to light. Yahweh's justice will prevail. That is the resolution of Psalm 73. It is also the resolution of the gospel itself. The Bible teaches us clearly There is no one among us who is righteous in God's sight. No, not one. Understand then the implications of that. That that together, by nature, we are all wicked. We are all the long-tongued liar. The midnight rider. The rambler, the gambler, the backbiter. That's all of us. There is not one among us who should not be set on slippery places and fall utterly to ruin, swept away by terrors. But, in the Gospel, there is grace for those who believe in God's remedy to their own wickedness. So full of love was God for His people and at the same time so committed to justice prevailing was God that He made Jesus the object of His justice as Jesus stood in the place of the wicked. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus. This is the Gospel This is the good news for those who believe and are counted among the righteous. This broken world will not last forever. This world where the wicked prosper and injustice reigns seemingly with every headline we read. One day, someday, the world will be made new and justice will prevail. Jesus has secured it. And he was raised from the dead to prove it. Though Asaph didn't yet know the name Jesus, nonetheless, in faith, he looked forward to Jesus, believing in a coming day when God would restore justice, true justice, to the world. And now, in faith, looking back to Jesus, we know that Asaph's faith His faith was not in vain. Asaph's vision of a future where justice would reign has been and will be completely fulfilled in the work of Jesus Christ. And so we can say with Asaph, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, 
but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for your word, which is truth. We pray that you would sanctify us by the truth. Give us faith to believe. By its very nature, faith is believing in something that we cannot see. We cannot reach out and touch it. And that so often seems to be, it so often seems to be the case in this world that we need faith to believe these words, to believe this resolution. Father, give us your faith. Sanctify us by the Holy Spirit, for we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.